We are in the Gospel of Mark, as we have been for quite a while. And you know, if you were raised in the South, in the Southern Baptist denomination, that our religion and our denomination within that religion is not filled with annual festivals or pilgrimages. We might encourage a -a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Israel, but we wouldn't call it a pilgrimage. Certainly, we wouldn't say that it is necessary as part of your faith. We might have dinner on the grounds or the occasional church-wide fellowship, but these are more for fellowship and for food and getting to know one another. There is usually not any spiritual significance to them. I suppose the closest thing that we've had was a couple of years ago when we did our 230th anniversary and we had lunch afterwards. And as part of that, we We had some memorabilia, and we tried to look back and think about God's faithfulness over those 230 years to the many Christians who have come through this church. And we thought about uh, the present and ultimately the future in praising God for not only where we've been, but where we are going to go. But Judaism, especially at the time of Jesus, was indeed filled with festivals and pilgrimages, It was a part of their religious life. It was a part of their social life. There were three main annual events. There were other smaller events, but there were three main annual events. The first was the event called Passover. Now, all three of these often had agricultural along with spiritual significance. Passover, also called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was seven days after that that they did not eat anything uh, bread-wise except unleavened bread. Then there was the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. This festival took place 50 days after Passover. Can you imagine having a second significant annual event just 50 days from the previous one? Well, we actually do, don't we? We have Thanksgiving and Christmas, so we can imagine that. And then the third annual event was the Feast of Tabernacle, or Tents. This commemorated the time when the Israelites were in the wilderness living in tents, and so they they lived in tents once again to think back about how God had kept them and blessed them during that time. And this occurred uh, five days after the Day of Atonement. Now, obviously, these festivals, these pilgrimages, took place in the city of Jerusalem where the temple played a prominent role in the lives of the people. So people would come from all over the land. They would travel, perhaps for days on end, to make it to the festivities, which usually lasted several days or upwards of a week. And as you can imagine, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled, some say up to three times its normal population, with all of these pilgrims coming from around the area. And when they got there, they would discover what they already knew, and that is there were not going to be enough hotel rooms either in the city or the suburbs to accommodate them all. So they would have to stay with friends and family and in the surrounding villages, The temple would be the center of attention with people gathering there to worship and to offer sacrifices, perhaps even to meet up with old friends that they would see on these occasions. Merchants would be there hawking their wares, trying to make a profit over what they are selling, some of which was necessary for the event. Can you, can you just imagine hearing them trying to get the attention of the crowds as they are coming in town so that they can sell what they have brought? To say the least, the atmosphere would have been exciting and electric. 
It would have been crowded and chaotic, the kind of atmosphere that that some of you love and the kind of atmosphere that some of us loathe. It is one of those festivals, the Passover, in which Jesus is going to spend the last week of His earthly life. We commemorate today what is traditionally called Palm Sunday on the Christian calendar, the Sunday before Easter. It is called Palm Sunday because John records that the people laid palm branches before Jesus as He is making His way into the city. They laid palm branches on the streets before Him. John is the only one that actually records that. All three of the other gospel writers merely say, leafy branches. And because we've been in Mark's gospel, that's what we're going to see. But I guess leafy branches Sunday just doesn't sound as good as Palm Sunday. And if you've ever been watching a sporting event in the middle of the night because you cannot sleep, you have probably heard this phrase when they've come back from commercial. They will say, due to time constraints, we have moved forward in the action which means that they skipped part of the game to get it into the allotted time. Well, that's what we're doing this morning. Due to time constraints or due to the Christian calendar, we have moved forward in the action. That doesn't mean we're going to skip some things. After Easter is over, we're going to go back to Mark 6 and pick up where we left off last week. But for today, we're going to be in Mark 11, the triumphal entry. And then, of course, next week we are going to be looking at the resurrection. So fast forward with me to Mark chapter 11 and open your eyes and see if you can see, see if you can hear all of the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. And while you're there, see if you can see that indeed the King is coming. Mark chapter 11 verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and He sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The king is coming, and we see, first of all, that the king is coming to Jerusalem. We normally call this the triumphal entry, and there is certainly nothing wrong with that title, but when you think about the rest of the week, minus, of course, our celebration next Sunday of the resurrection, the rest of the week looks anything but triumphant. In fact, the rest of the week looks rather tragic. This is only the second episode in the Gospels that all four Gospel writers record telling us something about the importance of this moment. 
Today is the first day of what we call Passion Week. That title seems a bit odd because of the way we define passion. When we think of passion, we think of something we greatly desire. In fact, we might even naturally think of the sexual desires when we think of passion. But the word passion comes from a Latin word which means suffering. So when we talk about the Passion Week of Christ, we are not talking about His desires nor ours. We are talking about the sufferings of Christ. Something that I always try to encourage you to think about during this week. Because if all we do is gather today for the triumphal entry and return next Sunday for the celebration of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Christ, and we miss everything in between, number one, our celebration will not be adequate And number two, we simply will not think through what Christ has done for us in all of His sufferings. And so I want to encourage you this week to think about the events that transpired between these two Sundays. Roughly one-third of Mark's gospel is set during this last week of Jesus' life. Some have even called His gospel a passion narrative with a lengthy introduction. Obviously, the events of this week are crucial for us in understanding the mission and the purpose of Jesus. As I mentioned, all of this takes place during the Passover, which was the annual festival celebrated in memory of God's delivering the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. You may remember that story. God sent a series of plagues upon the Egyptians trying to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, and the last plague was the plague that killed the firstborn of all. But God said to the Israelites, if you will do this, your firstborn will not be killed. They were to select a lamb, they were to kill that lamb and eat it, and they were to take part of the blood from that lamb and put it over their doorpost. And that night, when the angel of death came to take the firstborn, If he saw the blood over the doorposts of their homes, then he would pass over that house and they would not face death, and that is where the name comes from. So the blood of the Lamb saved them from death, and I certainly think you can see the picture here of what Jesus was about to do. And this wouldn't be just any Passover. John tells us that large crowds heard that Jesus was coming. No doubt they had heard of what we've already looked at. They've heard of the miracles that He's performed. They've heard of His exercising of demons. They, they've heard the fact that He teaches as one who has authority and not as the scribes. And now they've heard that this one that they've heard so much about is going to come to this Passover. And so the excitement is ratcheted up beyond a normal Passover event. The Passover celebration itself occurred on the 14th day of the month at evening. But that would be Thursday. That would be the time that he gets together with his disciples and and has the Passover meal. But the lamb itself was selected on the 10th day of the month. A family would select their lamb to be slaughtered on the 14th, but they did so on the 10th, which would be today. If the 14th is Thursday, then the 10th would be Sunday. And so it is quite possible that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem with all of these lambs that are being selected for the sacrifice. The Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, is coming into Jerusalem with thousands of lambs that are also going to be sacrificed that week. It is on that Thursday night when He will 
announce that one of them will betray him. It is on that Thursday night that he is going to transform the Passover celebration into what we call the Lord's Supper. A Passover meal no longer. Now it is a remembrance of his death for us. And just to give you an idea of the scope of what was going on in Jerusalem, Josephus tells us, he is the Jewish historian, Josephus tells us that in the year A.D. 66, now I realize that's 30 plus years later, but I'm just trying to give you the scope of it. In A.D. 66, Josephus records that in that year, 255,600 lambs were sacrificed just to give you a sense of the enormity of what was going on in Jerusalem at this time. So that is why Jesus and his disciples, when we come to Mark 11, and by disciples I mean a a broader group at this point, not just the, the 12. That is why they have made their way to Jerusalem. That is why they have traveled along with many others to get there. But before they get to Jerusalem, they arrive at the Mount of Olives which actually overlooks the city of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives sits 2,600 feet above sea level, some 300 feet or so higher than Jerusalem itself. And here is a picture of that spot, the Mount of Olives. And I recognize that it would have looked much different in those days, but those trees you see in the distance are indeed olive trees. The place played a prominent role in the Old Testament. It played a prominent role in the New Testament. The Bible says this place is going to play a prominent role in the future return of Christ. But on this day, it was merely a stopping point for Jesus to gather his disciples together and make preparations to enter the holy city. Much of the text that we've read is taken up with Jesus sending two unnamed disciples into an unnamed city. We assume that this city is Bethpage because Bethany is further away. Bethany is where he will spend the nights during this week, traveling back and forth and spending the nights at the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the debated question in this particular section of Scripture is, did Jesus make prior arrangements with the owner of this colt or donkey so that all of this could go about as he had planned? Or or is this an example of him knowing more than everybody else knows? And the fact of the matter is we don't know the answer to that question, and it is nowhere near the heart of the story, so don't get bogged down in that detail. We do know that he wants a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Mark doesn't quote it, but the other gospel writers do. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And that's why I've used my title this morning as the king is coming. He is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey just as Zechariah had prophesied. And though we understand more than the initial audience did, we, we're not sure how much they knew about the messianic events here or about the kingly significance of what we see taking place here, but they had to have caught some of it, but not all of it. Again, John tells us plainly that the disciples didn't understand all of these things until after the resurrection. The small detail that this is to be a donkey that has never been ridden upon is also important. Several times in the Old Testament, an animal of this nature is deemed to be a sacred animal. 
And while it is the prerogative of a king to commandeer an animal to ride upon, it is not the prerogative of others to ride upon the horse that is owned by the king, or in this case, the donkey. Interestingly enough, it is the only time we know of Jesus actually riding on an animal. Every other time we see him traveling from one place to another, he is either walking or in a boat. And in fact, the the normal way to enter into Jerusalem for the festival was indeed on foot. But Jesus enters this way to testify of who he is. And once again, after all the arrangements have been made, they put some of their coats on the animal as a makeshift saddle. Others of them put their coats on the street. Still others go for those leafy branches or palm branches, and they throw them on the ground as he rides into town. And they make the short journey from the Mount of Olives down into the valley and then up to Jerusalem again. And this next picture is indeed a picture of the city of Jerusalem from the vantage point of the Mount of Olives. And so you can see they would have to go down and then rise back up. And the focal point of Jerusalem in our current day is the the Dome of the Rock there. And while that is not the temple. It is the place upon which the temple stood at that time. And so Jesus is riding down into the valley and up into Jerusalem, and he is headed for that very spot. And the next thing we see along the way are shouts of welcome. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is actually a transliteration. It is not a translation. So what does it mean? It's transliterated, meaning it takes the the Hebrew letters and transfers them into English, but it does not translate the word. So we sing Hosanna quite often, but perhaps you don't know what it means. It actually means, save us, I pray. In fact, as Scott read Psalm 118 earlier, it was translated there. And so that's what it said there, save us, we pray. That's what Hosanna means. It was a cry for deliverance. It was a cry for help. It was later changed into a cry or a shout of praise as it is used here. And Psalm 118 and several of the psalms that surround it are what we call psalms of praise or psalms of ascent. These would have been psalms that the pilgrims sang as they came into the city for these festivals and as they made their way to the temple, they would have likely been singing Psalm 118 or one of the others like it. And that's why we call it Psalms of Ascent. This is what they sang as they ascended to the temple. Mark is the only one who adds the second statement about the kingdom of David. Clearly, this is a messianic title in nature to us meaning for us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of an eternal throne in the line of King David. But again, they probably wouldn't have made that designation at the time. It's hard to tell just how much they grasped in this moment. But for us, it is yet another statement in this event that tells us something about the deity and kingly reign of Christ. In fact, the other gospel writers tell us that the religious leaders at the time were not happy about these shouts of praise. They deemed them to be too high, and Jesus, in their view, as a mere man, did not deserve such praise, and so they actually came to Jesus and asked him to put a stop to these praises. And that is when Jesus tells them that if the people do not cry out his praises, the very stones or rocks will. The truth is, Mark is much more muted in his statements here than the other gospel writers are. 
He is more subtle in the claims of Jesus to being God and Messiah here. Perhaps he's still wrestling with that messianic secret and the balance between that and now the open proclamation that we find as he enters into the city of Jerusalem. But nevertheless, we see these messianic elements to this ride into town. It is not just that Jesus is coming to the Passover. This is a king coming into the city. And while he has arrived in the city as the king for the Passover, they still do not know what kind of king he is or what he is going to do. Mark tells us that he immediately went to the temple. And we need to understand that coming into Jerusalem was not the primary destination. The ultimate destination was not the city, but it was the temple. And so on that Sunday, after he enters into the city to shouts of Hosanna, he goes into the temple. Presumably now he is just with his twelve. As mysteriously as the crowds have arrived, they seemingly have now disappeared. And Jesus goes into the temple either alone or more probably with his twelve disciples, and he looks around the temple. He is not there as we might be in a European cathedral to admire the architecture He is not gazing up at the ceiling to look at the paintings that are there. He is certainly not taking selfies with his disciples. He is there to see what is taking place in his father's house. This is not the first time he has been there. He's seen most of these sites before. Instead, he is there to observe what is taking place so that he can plan what he is about to do. And then he quietly leaves town. Since it is the end of the day, and presumably they were in Jericho before, Jericho is 18 miles away, and if they have walked that 18 miles on this day and now come into Jerusalem, it indeed has been a long day. But if I might say it without sounding blasphemous, the triumphal entry sort of fizzles out. It's anticlimactic. Nothing happens. After he goes into the city to shouts of Hosanna, there is no teaching, there, is, there are no miracles, there are no deliverances, there are no encounters with the people of the city. He just goes into the temple and he looks around and he quietly departs. But as we often say, this might just be the calm before the storm. Because we want to see not only does the king come into Jerusalem But secondly, we want to see that the king comes into the temple. Look at verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city." So we've already talked about Jesus, the king, coming into Jerusalem, and I've made the point that Jerusalem was not his ultimate destination. It was, in fact, the temple, and so now we see the king coming into the temple. This is not just about a parade down Main Street. This is about a confrontation with the religious leaders in the temple. 
This is now the third temple in Jewish history. The first, of course, was built by Solomon, but it was later destroyed in 587-586 B.C., something that we will hear Micah talking about tonight. The second temple was constructed under the leadership of Zerubbabel after the remnant came back from Babylonian captivity after 70 years in Babylon. We read these stories in books like Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. They come back and they begin to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls of the city. But this temple, the one that Jesus goes into, was Herod's temple, Herod the Great. And to be fair, it's not a third new temple. It's actually just a major renovation or reconfiguring and expansion of that second temple that was built under Zerubbabel. Herod began this work in 19 B.C., and while much of it was completed during his lifetime before his death in B.C. 4, a lot of it still went on. It went on for decades. In fact, it was not finally completed until A.D. 66, or just four years before it was completely destroyed by the Romans as they put down the Jewish revolt. It is made up of four sections. There is the court of the Gentiles, and as its name implies, this is the only place in the temple that Gentiles were allowed to go. Secondly, there was the court of the women, and again, as the name implies, this was the only place in the temple that women were allowed to go. Thirdly, there was the court of Israel, and this was the place that only circumcised Jewish males could go. And then fourthly, there was the Holy of Holies, and no one could go in there except the high priest, and he could only go in one day out of the year, and that is the Day of Atonement. In fact, so seriously did they take these distinctions that there was a sign that was in between the Gentile area and the rest of the temple, and that sign read, no foreigner may enter within the railing and enclosure that surround the temple. Anyone apprehended shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. It was a death penalty offense for a Gentile to venture beyond the court of the Gentiles. And we know that in the New Testament, Paul is actually arrested in Jerusalem. And one of the charges against him was that he brought Greeks into the temple. And though the charge was false, it does tell us of just how serious they were about keeping Gentiles out of the other areas of the temple. So Jesus goes into the court of the Gentiles. That is where this story takes place. And it was a huge area. Some 35 acres encompasses this court of the Gentiles. And what he finds there is commerce. He finds a marketplace rather than prayer and worship. And this seems to have been a relatively new thing. There have always been marketplaces. There were always those who bought and sold at these festivals. And again, much of it was necessary, but they had usually been set up on the Mount of Olives, but now they are set up in the court of the Gentiles as well. And history tells us that this might have been the first year that this takes place. And Jesus sees this and is not pleased. These markets were there for two reasons. Number one, the pilgrims needed sacrifices. Now, they could bring their own But that meant traveling with these animals, and it meant the potential that their animal would not be sanctified by the priest. They had to meet certain specifications. And so it was easier simply to buy an animal when you got to Jerusalem that was already pre-approved by the priests. And so they were selling animals there. And it mentions doves or pigeons, which was the prescribed animal for the poor. But secondly, while they were there, they had to pay their annual temple tax. 
and they had to pay it in a specific currency, which meant they had to change or exchange one currency for another. So they were selling animals for sacrifice, and they were exchanging currency so that the temple tax could be paid. And like so many places in our own day, when a monopoly is found, the prices tended to rise above where they really needed to be. They were taking advantage of them, which is why Jesus says this house of prayer and worship has now become a den of robbers. And thus he drives them out. Probably not all of them. Again, this is a 35-acre area. But he drove some of them at least out to demonstrate what he was doing. And to make the point in the process that this was indeed to be a house of prayer. And Mark adds a line that nobody else adds. He says, for all the nations. And by the way, that's not anything new. If we come to the New Testament and say that Gentiles are now included as if it's a new thing, that's not true at all. That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7 that Mark brings to our attention here. Jesus was demonstrating his authority once again. We've seen in Mark that he has authority over the diseases. He has authority over demons. We've even seen that he has authority over death. And now he is, attempt, he is uh, demonstrating that he has authority over the temple and over those who run the temple. And in fact, one of the gospel writers tells us that that's exactly the question they asked. The religious leaders came to Jesus and said, by whose authority are you doing this? What right do you have to come into our temple and act like it is your own place? You have no authority to do this, and yet that's exactly what Jesus is showing them. Now, if you've been raised in a Southern Baptist church, you know how we apply this particular story. From this event, we come to conclude that it is not biblical to sell things in the sanctuary. And so if we happen to have a singing group who is traveling through town and we book them to do a concert and they want to sell our, their CDs, they cannot sell them in the sanctuary because of the Scripture. We must let them sell in the foyer, not the sanctuary. Or if we want to be really spiritual, we relegate them to the fellowship hall just to make sure there's no pretense of evil here. And this has become a debate and an argument in church after church. The practical people say, well, I don't see anything wrong with this. They're just selling CDs. Let them sell them in the foyer. While the spiritual people say, absolutely not. Jesus taught us better than that. They must go to the fellowship hall. Well, I want to ask you, do you think Jesus drove out these people from the temple to teach us that we need to sell CDs in the fellowship hall? Is that the message here? Or is there something much, much more significant Something much more important that it would be easy for us to say, oh, you can't sell in here. But there is something much more important. And what is that? Jesus is talking here about the fact that this is to be a place of prayer and worship. This is to be a place where the Gentiles can come and worship God. You see, the expectation was that when the Messiah comes, he would expel the Gentiles once and for all. No aliens, no foreigners. The Messiah would come and, and get rid of them once and for all. And what does Jesus do? He does the exact opposite. He does not drive the Gentiles out. He clears the place for them. Jesus is saying this is to be a place where the Gentiles can worship. This was the only place where they could worship in the temple. And yet the Jews were forbidding them from doing that by turning it into a shopping mall. And Jesus says, this is not right. 
I think if we're going to really apply this passage, perhaps we need to think more about who we welcome into worship, not where we sell CDs. We need to think about who we welcome into our sanctuary. Is it people just like us? Or is it people of all races, people of all nations, people of all economic backgrounds? Because what Jesus is doing here is saying that once and for all, there are no exclusions, there are no divisions. All are welcome to worship God because He is a God for all the nations. But even that's not the whole story. As you may have noticed, I skipped a section. Mark uses this sandwich technique again. We've become quite familiar with this by now. He sandwiches the cleansing of the temple in between the cursing of the fig tree and the explanation for the curse of the fig tree. So on Sunday, he comes into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry. Then he goes back to Bethany. Monday morning, he comes back to town, and on the way, he curses a fig tree. And then he goes into the temple, and he cleanses the temple. Then he goes back to Bethany, and on Tuesday morning, he comes back to Jerusalem again. And along the way, the disciples notice that the fig tree that he's cursed is now withered away, and he explains that to them. So why does Mark sandwich the cleansing of the temple in between this cursing of the fig tree? The cursing of the fig tree is one of the hardest stories to understand. We said this a few weeks ago. It's one of only two destructive miracles of Jesus. The first is the casting of the demons out into the herd of swine, and they run down the slope and drown. And this is the second one. So why does he do this? There are some who say, you know why he does this? He just got mad. I mean, this is Jesus allowing his anger to get the best of him. He's hungry. It is probably mid-morning, about the time they would eat breakfast. From a distance, he sees a fig tree, and he decides he wants to eat some figs. But when he gets there, there's no figs, and he is simply mad, and he curses it instead. But certainly, that's not going to be our conclusion. There are others who say this is just irrational. We can't really explain it. It is just an irrational story that does not make sense. After all, Mark explicitly says that it is not the season for fruit. So why would Jesus get mad at a fig tree when it's not even the season for it? It's irrational. But we're not going to go there either. This is what we call a dramatic or enacted parable. And we see these in the Old Testament. This is Jesus doing something that is out of the ordinary to get their attention and prove his point. And what is that point? Just as that fig tree looked good from a distance and had the promise of fruit, but upon further reflection it did not, so the religion of Israel looks to be attractive and active, but the truth is it was a dead faith. It was not a real relationship with God that stemmed from the heart. It was merely the outward trappings of religion. And this is what he was doing in the temple. This is why he went into the temple, the very symbol and the, and the center of their beliefs and the very dwelling place of God. And the magnificence and the beauty of that temple was merely masking the corruption and false security associated with it. And this Jesus came to expose and root out, along with the leaders who influence the people in the wrong direction. And that is why when we come to the end of this story, they are ready to kill him. And that is why they will kill him before the week is over. And may I say it once again for what seems like the hundredth time through the years. 
This is the same problem we still face today. People who think they are thriving in their spiritual or religious life, but who bear no fruit. Appearances can can indeed be deceiving even to ourselves. Jesus very clearly said, you will know them by their fruit. Israel did not have any, and so they would crucify the Messiah. And 40 years later, the, the city and its temple would be destroyed. The two places that they thought were both sacred and impenetrable. Nothing would ever happen to Jerusalem nor the temple because God dwelt there. And it was God who said, I'm going to destroy it because it's just symbolic of your dead faith. And as I stood at that location last year, it saddened me that I was looking at a Muslim mosque where the temple once stood. But more importantly, it continues to sadden me to see people who profess faith in Christ but who show no signs of a relationship with Him, no fruit whatsoever. And many of them will gather here next week to celebrate what they don't even understand. We call this episode the cleansing of the temple, but really it's not a cleansing. Really this is a condemnation of the temple, a critique of false religion that was being practiced there. Jesus did not come to reform the temple. He was not there to clear it out so that it could be something different. Jesus came to fulfill and replace the temple. Remember, he said, you want to tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it in three days. And they looked at him like he was crazy. Why? Because the temple had been under construction for decades at that time, and it was still 30-plus years away from being finished. And he said he could do it in three days. Of course, we know that he wasn't talking about the physical building. He was talking about himself. He was talking about his own death and his own resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We don't celebrate the Passover, not because we're not Jews. We don't celebrate the Passover because Christ is our Passover. It was his shed blood that now God sees, and therefore God passes over us not giving us the wrath and judgment that we deserve, but instead showering upon us His grace and mercy. And it is in this we remember the Lord's Supper. When we gather occasionally to commemorate the Lord's Supper, we do so to think about His crucifixion, His burial, and ultimately we do this in remembrance of Him until He returns. Paul goes on to say that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, The presence of God no longer resides in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. The presence of God is now in us and with us, at least for those of us who have repented by faith and show fruit of genuine repentance. The King is coming. He has come to Jerusalem. He has come to the temple. And now He has come to us. He who has authority over disease and authority over demons and authority over death is now residing in us by the presence of His Holy Spirit. And this same Jesus is coming again. And that first time in the triumphal entry, many in Jerusalem did not recognize Him for who He is. And so in closing, I want to ask you, are you going to recognize Him when He comes again? Are you going to be ready? Not for Jesus to come to Jerusalem and not for Jesus to come to the temple, but are you going to be ready for Jesus to return? The only way to be ready is to repent of your sins and by faith trust in Him. Let's pray.